All right, let's see if we can learn something here that will help you. Hindrances in prayer. If, if, if I didn't believe in a, in a devil, after I begin to pray, I really begin to believe. I really begin to believe. Because my prayer time just hit walls constantly. It'll hit a wall because of sin. The Bible says in Psalm 66, verse 18, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Now, here's basically what we need to understand about that. God's not interested in arbitrarily shutting out heaven to his people for any reason, for any, period. But sin has a way of somehow or another us closing the door. And, but what God is saying to us is that you don't become sinless in order for him to start hearing your prayer. But you become a person who is moving away from sin. And everything you can do to avoid it, you are doing. Now, most of us in this room, as we go through the course of life, there, we do something wrong every single day of life. Would you admit to that? And if you want to be technical, let me call it sin. You say, well, it wasn't a big sin. I want to go, Bible doesn't say what's big or what's little, you know. I just know this. <laughs> it's like one guy said, my wife gets snotty and I try to out-snot her. And, uh, forgive me for that. I just did just the only thing that came to mind. But the point I'm trying to make is something gets crosswire in the relationship and we would say, I probably shouldn't have done that. You with me? But we're not practicing it. We're sickened when it comes into our lives. We've tripped and we've fallen at that point. We feel guilty and it's good to feel guilty for those things. Are you with me on that? Okay. The Bible is talking about practicing sin in this particular verse. If I regard or practice sin, then the Lord will not what? The scripture also says, if we know to do good and don't do it, that's a sin. And so what happens is there's the element of tripping and falling or the element of dealing with. For instance, if, if somebody comes in here and says, you know, Ray, I haven't served the Lord for a long period of time. I got involved in drugs. And you're my pastor, you know, now, and I've been going to church here for about a year, but I'm up and down on the drugs thing. I can't keep out of it. There's days when I go real well, and there's days when I just fall back into sin. I'm not going to condemn the guy, first of all, but I'm going to tell him this. You need to get rid of that. That needs to get out of your life one way or another. I want to help him to get out of it. I don't believe that he is intent at that moment in practicing sin. It's not a matter of it's none of your business. I'll do what I want to do. And you've seen people like that. It's a matter of I'm crushed. It's a, it's a problem. It's become a stronghold. I don't want it in my life. I'm working. No condemnation, but definitely an encouragement. Get that thing out. Get somebody praying. You're with me. As opposed to, hey... None of your business, man. I do what I want to do. You know, if I want to live with somebody outside of wedlock, it doesn't make any difference. You know, I want to say there's hardness of heart at that point. The Bible makes distinctions between the two. And here's where it's saying the Lord will not hear. Meaning if you've got a stronghold, you've got a problem, you don't want it in your life, you keep praying, my friend. God will hear you. He will hear you. Then doubt. I don't think doubt is really a big deal. But it does come. And it comes sometimes at the strangest times. I, have, I don't have a whole lot of it as I used to, but I used to doubt whether God loved me. Anybody been there? I used to doubt whether God was going to deliver me over something. I used to doubt whether God was going to come through when I had some particular need. I used to doubt my salvation. Did, big time. Here's what I learned about it. When doubt came, if I would leave the thought alone for sometimes just a few days, it wasn't there anymore. Now, how funny is that? And I want to encourage you, when doubt comes, don't play games with it, but don't let it bother you. Keep doing what you've been doing up to that point in terms of righteousness. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Now, a lot of what I'm saying is not for you so much today as it is for you to help somebody else because you know many of the truths that I'm saying right now. What a lot of this is all about right now is to encourage and inspire you, yes, but it's also to say... I recognize that God has spoken to many of you the very truths that I'm talking about because I'm watching your heads go up and down like this as I'm preaching. 
knowing that God has made these truths very real to you. This is a reaffirmation that God indeed was speaking to you. you got something yet to do, and it may be just sitting down with a loved one and explaining some of the things that you've been reassured of this week. But unbelief, that'll kill you spiritually. And here's why. Unbelief is where you stop in your tracks in terms of you know what is right. You know, even though you're doubting and so forth at some point, and you quit going to church, you quit the Bible, you quit this, you quit that, and so forth. That's what unbelief is really all about. The next one is a wandering mind. Since none of you have that problem, part E. Probably the biggest one I find among Christians today. If I were to ask ahead of time, what's the most troubling thing that you find in prayer when you're alone with the Lord? The answer would be probably, number one, wandering mind. How many have tried to give God a half an hour in prayer and found out maybe you got through three minutes of good prayer? Yeah. <laughs> I would say, <laughs> you're normal. That's part of life. That's part of what this mind thing is all about. The battlefield is the mind, or the mind is the battlefield. Now, here's some things that I do. First of all, I recognize it as being a hindrance. I don't like it and I don't want it. But I'm willing to say this. Even if my mind wanders, I'm going to stay in prayer because I've given this amount of time to the Lord. I will stay here. Uh, then there's numbers of things that I do. There are days when I, I, just, I just don't feel like praying. Or days, again, when my mind is just wandering all over the place. How many have got halfway through a prayer and you can't remember what you were saying? And then I don't know the theology of how to begin again. Because I'm afraid to ask God to tell me what I was talking to him about for fear that if he doesn't do it, then he wasn't listening in the first place. That was supposed to be funny. But, you know, there's a certain reality because I see people, you know, smiling and say, yeah, these are realities, my friend. The point is this. Don't run. We're there to, to seek the Lord. We're there to be with the Father. And so there are times when I simply, my mind is wandering and, I, and I'll read a scripture. Or do my Bible reading at the time. Because Bible, reading the Bible is prayer. Because if prayer is really the communication system that I was talking about a little while ago, and God has chosen to communicate through this book, then what he has to say to me through this book is just as important as to what I have to say to him verbally. Make this book a part of your prayer time. And so there are times when I'll have it just as... And by the way... Positions in prayer. American Christians have been taught basically to pray on our knees. You don't find that much in Scripture. You find that there are basically two primary, I believe, positions. One is standing with your head held high and speaking to the Lord. The other is flat on your face on the floor or on the ground. Praying on our knees is basically a kind of a traditional Christian tradition. Meaning if you can't pray on your knees, then don't let that bother you. Most of the time I pray, I sit. I'm sitting in prayer. I love to pray on my knees. I have an extremely bad knee right now, and it's just going to hinder me from continuing on because I'm going to be thinking about the pain. I don't want to think about the pain. I want to think about the Lord. Oswald J. Smith is considered by some, at least, to be one of the greatest missionary, probably, statesmen that the world has ever known. Just incredible things happen in this man's church. He's gone to be with the Lord. Uh, but uh, his legacy goes on. It is said that Oswald J. Smith prayed an hour every single day. It is also said that he walked when he prayed. That in his office, he had a place probably about three feet wide and about six feet long. And he simply walked back and forth, talking to God during that course of the time. I'll tell you this. If you had a tendency to go to sleep in prayer, when you walk, you wake up real quick when you hit the ground. Just a good way to stay away. That's the point. And so, with, all, with the different hindrances, let's go down the list a little bit further. Um, I don't want to deal with F either. Or E, weariness. I, um, I need to do something to make sure I don't fall asleep. Oh, I know. I wanted to finish this. The wandering mind thing. Weariness. All of these would fit into this. Read the scriptures. But I have done this. Uh, how, how many have got to the end of a particular chapter and can't remember a single thing you read? How many have got to the end of the first verse and you can't remember the single thing you just read? I think this is going to be profound if you don't already recognize this. Read anyway. 
and keep reading and don't let it bother you. Because there's something about this book that sends the information not just into the human mind, as a normal book would do, or natural book rather, but sends it into the spirit. I know that's awful difficult for some of us to understand, but I think I can convince you with this. There have been times when you and I have read the Bible an awful lot and didn't think we got a single thing out of it, only to have it be brought back to us at a moment of Holy Spirit anointing when we needed it. This book, read it. Now, I admit there are parts of the book where are hard to read. You say, what parts? Chronicles. If you don't remember, Chronicles is the book where all these people are begetting all these other people. You know. Now, being a legalist, I used to feel that if you were reading in the Chronicles and you wanted to say that you'd read the entire Bible at some point in the future, you had to pr- not only read these names, but pronounce them. We're the legalists in this room. I don't see where you're at right now. Because we need to have lunch sometime together just to kind of rejoice in our ability to say we are the real, true people of God. Reformed legalist. But I'm trying to say there is that element of legalism. And, and this is to be humorous now. I had a friend that we're, I think we we're talking about this. I heard him say something about this. And it was a matter of when you get the Chronicles and you see all these people, you have my whole chapters, all these people begetting all these other people. He's basically saying, don't be legalistic. Let your mind, wander, mind wander, go from the first verse down to the last verse and simply say, thank you, Jesus, for letting all these people beget all these other people. Amen. <laughs> because it goes faster. And then you wonder, why in the world is all of this chronicle stuff in a Bible that's supposed to be, you know, anointed by the Holy Spirit? And then you're reading someday and it just seems about, you know, don't tell God I told you this, but it seems boring. You know, and then you're reading through it, and all of a sudden you come to the prayer of Jabez. Changed my life. Every day of my life, basically, I take before the Lord my loved ones, and it's basically to say, Lord, this day, you know, keep my family from evil and from the evil one. There are days when I'll say, Lord, just keep my family, and I'll name certain names or so forth. My daughter Amy going through some horrible things right now. Lord, keep Amy. Uh, one of the international leaders in our time, and a person perhaps if I mentioned his name you'd know him, maybe. But his daughter has turned her back upon the Lord. She's become an alcoholic. Well, I'll tell you, I, it just grieves me, and I want to pray for this girl. Does anybody believe in what I'm talking about right now? Just a matter of, you know, my heart is weighed down by these things. And so... The prayer of Jabez helped me to pray better. David's prayers helped me to pray better. And, of course, there's times when I, just, you know, I go through a prayer and uh, I, I may read it and say, Lord, this is what I want. This is the, you know. How many have ever felt this way? You're reading a prayer and you go, ditto. <laughs> ditto, God, ditto. Lord, I want this in my life, whatever it was. And then, of course, it's a matter of when it comes to David, it's God, make me like David except for his sin. Lord, make me like Daniel, except for his sin. God, make me like, and you know what I'm talking about, there's just something about the Scriptures that stir the human spirit and causes us to be in love with the Lord. And my friend, it will continue to happen even when your mind is wandering. Don't worry about it. And of course then, weariness. Oh, man, I can't tell you how many times. Not so much anymore, but every once in a while I catch myself. I've slept, I know, for the last ten minutes, and here I am in prayer. I can sleep standing up. I can sleep laying down. I can sleep sitting. I can sleep on my knees. I can sleep just about any position you can possibly imagine. But I am going to continue on, and that's not going to stop me, even if it happened three times this last week. I will continue to pray, because that is my commitment. Laziness. Don't want to talk about it. Anybody here want to admit to that one? You simply don't do things you need to do because you are just plain lazy. All right, follow me on this. All of us basically are to one degree or another. And it goes something like this. Father, there's not necessarily an excuse that I want to share with you about this, but I am, I tend to be lazy. Lord, will you help me to get past that? My friend, that is so much different than a prayer that goes, or an attitude that goes, I'm going to do better. I will figure this out. I will listen to Ray Beeson. I will listen to Pastor Greg. I'll figure that. It's far different than the, than the humility prayer that goes, Lord, I'm not making it in this area. I'm not going to go into condemnation because of this, 
But Jesus, I need your help. And then there's preoccupation with or cares of this life. There's the next one, actually. I go to prayer some days, and I can think of 1,676,494,000, you get the point? Things, ultimately, that are distracting me in prayer. And again, I'll do something at that moment oftentimes. I will pick the Bible up. Now, there's something else that I do in prayer that I really like, and that is that with our uh, digital age today, uh, iPods and, and um, uh, what I want to say, CDs and so forth, there are, there's some incredible music out there today. And we sang some incredible songs. If you listen to the words out of that hymnal today, some incredible stuff, and you can find that. I don't believe there's anything wrong with taking that into a time of prayer and simply allowing those words and so forth to help us to focus our attention upon the Lord. I think it's a good exercise. I don't use my, I don't use that all of the time because I don't want to be, what do I want to say, um, attracted to or use something as a, eventually becomes a crush. But the next one, preoccupation with incidentals. Just too many things sometimes in my life that don't really need to be there. And so for the number of years now, I've been paring down. Uh, my wife and I used to collect things a lot. We still do a little bit. I'm collecting baseball cards, and, I, and I'm making it in football cards. And I, make, I, I justify it by saying I'm doing this for my grandchildren. But I used to collect Hot Wheels, and I used to collect this, and I used to do this. And some of you perhaps collect Beanie Babies and so forth. Say, Ray, do you think there's anything wrong with that? No, but there is a word, I think, that would describe exactly what every one of us in this room probably believe. It's called moderation. And I don't know what moderation is. And so I need the help of the Holy Spirit. Because what I think is moderate, sometimes two years later, I begin to realize was overboard. And so it's called discernment. Lord, give me discernment is how to act. And so make sure, Lord, that there's not things coming into my life because I'm giving you permission. If that's the legal way of saying it, the theological way. I'm just saying, Lord, I really want your will, and so pair my life if you need to do that. And then there's ignorance, the whole ignorance area. To become ignorance of God's forgiveness will create horrendous amount of condemnation, and then you won't pray. Or ignorance as to how the enemy works against the human mind, for instance. Or ignorance concerning the power of the flesh. I don't want to ever suppose that I'm free from doing something stupid. Because there's too many powerful, powerful Christians or have been, at least on the surface or whatever, I don't know, that have done something wrong and have led whole congregations into discouragement because we didn't think that they could fall. We didn't think that it could happen to them. But it does. And so, Lord, help me to be always aware, not out of some kind of an element of fear and intrepidation, but just to realize that flesh stuff is pretty powerful. Let me see if I can prove it to you. I believe chocolate is one of the four main food groups. But I, don't, I can't eat chocolate for several reasons. One is I, I have diabetes, and evidently I'm allergic. Chocolate will send me into the ozone. It really won't send me into the ozone if I would eat it in moderation. Now, I'm not being funny right now. This is very serious. I do not know how to keep that in moderation. Because when I eat chocolate, it's a matter of I need about six pounds of it, and I am determined to eat the entire thing. So, what happens? I eat the entire thing, and now I feel what? I feel guilty. For me, 36 hours later, and I'm still suffering from it with a headache and all kinds of stuff that happens when you do something you knew that was wrong to do, and especially along those lines. Uh, part J, emotional difficulties including feelings. What I'm talking about right now is that when you get into an emotional difficult time, to continue on with your commitment in prayer becomes extremely difficult at that point. And you're liable to wind up in guilt also because you just don't have the strength to do it. Here's what I do. I make sure my circle of friends know what I'm going through so that they can hold me in prayer while I can't hold myself. I wound up in the hospital a number of years ago, very, very, very sick. I couldn't pray. There was no way I could pray. And to try to do so was just frustrating. You've been there before, I'm sure. It's just a matter of I can't pray. I can't. I cannot do it. But you know, there were so many people that were around that bed during the time of four days I was in the hospital. It was just a matter of, and they were praying for me. That's what really strengthened me. And again, it goes to your pastor. 
Strengthen this man by praying for him. Continue to do so. Because there are going to be days when he just doesn't feel like praying. Hold him up. Pray for him. This is important for him because it's scriptural. It's biblical. And so emotional difficulties, including feelings. Tough, tough time at that particular time. The next one is poor or no teaching. The next one is little or no encouragement. I, I made a commitment, not a Bible vow, some years ago to give God an hour in prayer a day. I wouldn't encourage you necessarily to do it right now unless you really felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit. But no matter what you make a commitment to, make sure it's not a Bible vow. And here's the difference between it. My commitment, if I fail in that hour, I'm not going to live in condemnation. Does that make sense? So if it's 55 minutes, it's not going to be condemnation. If it's not what it should be or I would like it to be, it's not going to be condemnation. But here's what I've discovered. I start missing a day, then it's two, and then it's three, and then it's four. And so I'm pretty legalistic on that. I'm here to spend an hour with God. Now, in your mind, you may be saying 20 minutes, which I think is, is very valuable. And you might say, boy, I'm going to spend 20 minutes with God, no question about it, at least three days a week, maybe four. And you make a small commitment, and you find out if you really get into that commitment, then you can make a little bigger commitment, a little bigger commitment, without making a Bible vow. Folks, it's dangerous to make a Bible vow and not fulfill it. And then this whole idea of, of uh, vain repetition, I'm not going to go into that. Number 10, and I've got two minutes or so, and that is pray, the praying person's personal life. Now, in this particular section, I don't do a lot of teaching on this. Not that it's not valuable or important. It's just simply I want you to reflect upon your own personal life. Meaning simply, is, is God allowed in your life to continue to make you into a new creation? And if you pray Psalm 51, verse 10, then I know you are. If you're praying, creating me a clean heart, you're saying, God, change me. If you're saying, Lord, I'm a little bit negative, I'm a little bit bitter, I'm a little bit critical, I'm having trouble with, uh, with unforgiveness, uh, th that's a person moving forward. And that's good. And so... Take a careful look at this. When it comes to separation from the world, that's hard. It, unless, I think unless you really know what God's saying. You say, Ray, are you separated from the world? Well, what do you mean? Well, the Bible says to be separated from the world. I want to say, well, what does the Bible mean? And so I study, and here's what I find. It doesn't mean to join a commune way up in the mountains someplace where you'll never be in contact, basically, with people from the world. Jesus said we're to be in the world, but not of the world. You say, what does that mean? I've got a lot of friends that don't know Jesus. A lot of friends that don't know Jesus. But I have to kind of put the, put the parentheses or whatever around the word friend. Because I'm friendly to these people, but only to a point. Meaning simply, I believe, Pastor, I can pour my heart out to you. I believe that I can pour my heart out to an awful lot of people in this room. I wouldn't say any of those things to a person that doesn't know Jesus. Because they would not be able to identify. They would not be able to get involved in the communication and so forth. And so there's dynamics that there to be considered. Um, the world and a lot of churches in the world. And by the way, don't, don't condemn churches, whatever you do. Because the church belongs to Jesus. If you come to me and you start criticizing arbitrarily my wife, I'm going to be in your face in a minute. And you're in trouble because I will not back down. You do not criticize my wife. If you've got a problem, go talk to her and she can handle it. But don't criticize my wife. Do not do it. The same is true with his wife. That's the body. Boy, I'm very careful about how I talk about other Christians. Extremely careful because that's the body of Christ. And I'll be very careful about how I talk to him. And so, just a little kind of a note on there. But what I'm trying to say is a lot of churches today are not concerned in holiness. There's an anti, it's called antinomianism. Say, what is it? Anti against nomian law. Meaning simply, grace is so great that you can do anything you want in life, commit any sin. And still go to heaven. I don't buy that, my friend. Not even for a moment. It's just not part of my theology. Pastor, am I right? 
there's a certain line that I need to hold. And if I cannot hold it on my own, then I'm going to ask my pastor, Greg, will you help me to hold this line? I'm going to ask Jesus, will you help me to hold this line? Because I'm going to hold the line even if I have to have help holding it. Are you with me? I'm tired. I need to go home. <laughs> Are we doing okay right now? All right. Pastor's going to come and dismiss us. I think we're just about two minutes over time from what I anticipated. Will you come back tomorrow? Bring a friend. Concerning that offering coming up, don't ask what it takes Ray Beeson to live. Ask what it takes Linda Beeson to live. They're slightly different. <laughs> Good to see you this evening. In your notes, we're going to begin once again. And if you'll follow with me, I'll just kind of outline where we're headed. What this week is all about is really to help you personally put together a prayer life. I explained on Sunday, no, on Saturday, actually, today's Sunday. I explained that uh, when, we, when it comes to prayer, prayer is not an option according to God's Word. How many understand that? At the same time, I think there's a tremendous element of feeling pinched when we recognize that we're supposed to pray, and then so many people have such a difficult time praying. I've taught prayer in America for over 30 years now, and as a prayer teacher, not only do I struggle myself sometimes, but I find countless numbers of other people. That's why I indicated. It says one, one set of statistics indicates the average Christian prays about, 30, or about 60 seconds a day. The average pastor prays about six and a half minutes a day. And, of course, we could get into the guilt, the condemnation, and all of that, and reasons why maybe our nation is not doing as good as it should, de- should be doing, going downhill spiritually. I really don't want to track in that area because I don't like the negativism that's involved in it. I don't like any of that. I believe that in these days, rugged days, actually, that God's people need to be encouraged and inspired. Uh, I love going to prayer. Now, I mentioned yesterday the difficulties of prayer, the wandering mind, the laziness, the weariness, just all kinds of things that hinder that. But over the years, I've discovered things that help me want to be there. And so the best part of my day is in prayer. Now, that's almost a misnomer when I think about it personally myself because I'm an outdoors person. Um, I, I love sports. I love hiking in the hills. I love fishing and all those kinds of things. And generally, somebody that's motivated in that direction, or a multi-multitasker, probably, as my wife would say, you don't find time for things that ultimately seem as if somehow or another they're not quite as important as something else. Number one thing in my life today is prayer. Nothing more important than prayer. And the reason for that is after you've done it for a period of time, after you've committed yourself to a time of prayer, and then you begin to see the results of it, not just for you personally, but for others as well, then you become convinced this is the best thing that I can possibly do. And so my goal is to encourage and inspire. It's also to say that we as Christians are fighting some battles sometimes that we don't recognize. And so what I'd like you to do in your Bibles is we want to go back to Genesis chapter 3 for just a few moments. I'd like to relay some groundwork, if you will, as to what we're up against. Um, One of my favorite subjects today is history, and especially the history of the church. When I was in high school, I had no favorite subjects except P.E., I think, and girls, and sports, and things like that. I, I did not like English. I did not like history. I liked mathematics, but only because I had a math teacher at some particular point that took some interest in me, and as a result, I developed an interest in that. Today, however, I really, really enjoy history. I like to go back and find out some of the fundamental elements of how uh, the church got started, uh, how it has become diverse and yet so very, very close to the... uh, How many have ever thought churches just everywhere you go are so diverse you don't know what the truth is? I have traveled extensively across America. Here's what I find. Anybody that believes in Jesus as being the only way to the Father or believes in the virgin birth, do you believe in the virgin birth? Uh, basically what I'm finding across denominational lines is folks who are much closer than we are further, far apart. And that's kind of an exciting thing to me because I believe when you're in the body of Christ it brings you closer. But one of the things that I'm seeing is not division among God's people so much as 
tremendous amounts of worry, anxiety, depression, discouragement, uh, loneliness. There are huge numbers of people in our world today. And because I'm a researcher, I'm interested in certain elements of research, and this is one of them. And as I research, I find that you can sit in church on the Sabbath. You can sit on church, whatever, and you can be as lonely as you can possibly be. You can shop in crowded, rest or crowded stores and eat in crowded restaurants and, I don't know how to say this one, drive on crowded freeways and uh, still be lonely. How many understand what I just said? There's that element that is touching humanity, I think, more than at any other time. And so in Genesis chapter 3, what we get out of here basically is God saying to humanity, I know what you're going through. And, of course, you can say, well, we understand that from the cross. We understand that from words on the New Testament as well. But going this far back to Genesis chapter 3, God actually outlines what you could say, if you've ever studied psychology, is the fundamental element of psychology. And it really is biblical concepts. And so here they are. Genesis chapter 3, we read verses 6 and 7, how the fall took place. And then God says, after the fall through a dialogue with Adam and Eve. These are the problems now that have resulted from, Adam, your disobedience and rebellion. Ultimately, these things have come into your life. Does anybody remember what the, the basic element was, though, that was lost that caused the problems? What did, what did Adam and Eve lose? They lost the presence of God. And that's why yesterday I tried to... Try to hit this pretty hard. That the only things that we know in Scripture... Now, if you know something different than I do, please tell me and it'll be in the next seminar. But uh, it's the word prayer and fellowship that bring back what? The presence of the Lord into the individual lives. And that's one of the reasons why I maintain, to the best of my ability, a commitment, not a Bible vow, but to be in the word, to be in prayer, and to be in fellowship basically every day of my life. Say, how do you do that? Well, being in the Word, I don't think, is, is difficult to understand. Being in prayer, the same thing. In fellowship, I'm in contact with an awful lot of Christians, and I would say not maybe on a daily basis other than my wife, but on a pretty regular basis, meaning simply it's not just a matter of the Sabbath. It's a matter of, or if you go to church on Sunday, it's a matter of that we need to maintain the community of believers. Here's, here's what I'm after. I want to challenge you to do something. I've been doing it for years and years and years and years and been blessed by it. I have numbers of phone numbers in my cell phone that I'll be driving down the street or I'll be doing something else. They're, they're, most of them are phone numbers of Christian people, and often I just call somebody up and say, hey, I was thinking about you. Just wanted to know how you're doing. That is a part of community. And what it does is it continues to bring community together. The fellowship of the believers, the New Testament talks about, friend, this is vital. I, I, I don't think I can overemphasize this. And it's vital simply because the enemy of our soul would dearly love to divide us from the community of believers. You probably know people right now. They were injured in church at some particular point, offended. And as a result, they don't go to church anymore. How many know people like that? You know, and I just want to say, you know, that, how tragic that is. Because Jesus said, offenses will what? They'll come. And ironically, if we look at it, they come more in church probably than any other place in the world. Now, I want to say, if the enemy of our soul is real, wouldn't he do something to break us apart in order to cause that to happen? So that if somebody has feelings that get hurt and they leave the body, what have they done? They've just given place to the devil. And the scripture says, do not give place to the devil. And that's exactly what we do sometimes. I believe there are other reasons, too. It's estimated this community right here, that 65% of your community right here uh, contain people that know and understand biblical truth as far as salvation is concerned in Jesus, but don't go to church anymore. Say, so why is that? Well, some of them were offended. But I think a greater portion of them, it wasn't that they were offended. It was that after a period of being taught certain elements of the word, they felt they could not live up to what was being taught. I mean, think about it for a moment. There are an awful lot of things in Scripture that we become responsible for once we become believers. How many understand that? All right. Uh, start putting them all together, and it becomes, if we're not careful, an awful big list of responsibilities and if we're not careful, what happens is those responsibilities, as they're weighted upon our shoulders, 
When we fail, then we feel what? Guilty. You know, human beings will do almost anything possible to escape guilt. What did Adam do? It's not my fault. And so if we're going to escape guilt, sometimes it means simply we're just not going to go to church anymore. It wasn't that they didn't love pastor. It wasn't that they didn't love this church and the people in this church. It was a matter of it's too hard to live up to it. And Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 7 says things now that become extremely liberating when you get a hold of them. He says, or he begins to identify exactly what I'm talking about right now. And he says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I always find myself doing. The beautiful truth of what eventually comes out of that particular writing is that at the end of the chapter, Paul says the solution is found in Jesus. And so here's what I'm after. When the weight of responsibility comes on our shoulders, that is where God steps in and says, I want to strengthen you. I want to help you. You see, in Islam, it's not that way. It's a matter of here are the responsibilities. You're responsible for them. You better live up to them or else. Same in Buddhism, same in Confucianism, same in every works-oriented kind of religion. In Christianity, it was never meant to be that way. It was meant that we would know responsibility but have the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit to help us to complete the responsibility. For instance, I know I'm supposed to be good. <laughs> Folks, there's not a person in this room who would want to be around me just 20 years ago, before Jesus really began to say, Ray, I want Advent to your life. It was a matter of, you know, I, I was popular. I held high positions, a, a, a bachelor's degree in mathematics, a master's degree in secondary school administration, uh, able to teach kindergarten through uh, junior college, all kinds of stuff. But it, it wasn't a matter of, uh, how can I say it, uh, really being concerned about people. It was all about Ray Beeson. But then I learned what was good and what was bad, and I decided I wanted to do what was good. Here's the point. The harder I tried, I remembered to be good, the worse I got. Or I could do the good for a period of time, and then all of a sudden I found myself really in the bucket. It just wasn't something I could continue on with any kind of consistency. And so my Christian experience went something like this. It was just up and down. And then I began to read scriptures such as Colossians 1. You might want to write these down. I've written an entire book on this, just recently came out. It's called Don't Miss the Point. You say, what's the point? The point is Jesus in me, the hope of glory. And that's Colossians chapter 1. Here's what it says. Let me paraphrase it. Paul said, I've been made a minister according to the dispensation of grace which is given unto me to preach the gospel unto you. And then he calls the gospel a mystery that was hidden from ages and generations past. Now, if you're not familiar with this verse of Scripture, get familiar with it, please. I've been made a ministry, he says. And then he talks about a mystery that was hidden. Then he goes on to say what the mystery is. And, you know, it just can go right over the top of us if we're not careful. Because the mystery, he says, is simply Christ in us. And I don't know how many times I read that, and it just didn't sink in. Until one day, all of a sudden, it began to... And you start to meditate on it, you start to think about it. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ does what? He lives in me. Now that's more than just some kind of a theological set of whatever you want to call it. It becomes a reality to a believer like Paul the Apostle that is saying, I'm frustrated because I want to do good, but I'm just not doing it. And all the guilt and condemnation comes about. So Philippians 2.13 says that it is God who works in us. Works in us, both the will and to do of his good pleasure. Siri, so how does that work? It's a matter of recognizing that I'm not to be passive. That's not the point I want to make. The point is simply that there's just too much responsibility for me to carry through on all of it until I recognize that God can work in me. He can work in me to change my mind if I allow him to. He can change my will. He can change my attitude. He can change my motives. He can, he can help at least in all of these things. Now, one of the reasons I believe that God gave us guys a helpmate, which I believe women are equal to men. I don't think there's any question, I hope, in anybody here in this room. But my wife is a tremendous help to me personally. Me meaning today, she, she, uh, she didn't talk a lot, even when we travel. But today she talked for probably a straight hour, personally and straight to me, about things 
that I needed to listen to and hear, and I was obedient. That was a joke, but it was really true. <laughs> Here's the point. She, she was great counsel today, and what she said today, well, well, just kind of that little mid-course correction that we need. You know, every once in a while when dealing with children, dealing with somebody you're teaching, it's not bashing them in the face with some kind of truth and saying, if you don't get this, I'm going to slam you a little bit harder next time. Most of the time, I just share with my children a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here. How many understand? Just a little bit. Of, and all of a sudden, you find a person beginning to change. God can work in us, the Bible says, in a very similar way in order to complete his will in us. And that becomes what makes Christianity radically different from Islam, from any other so-called religion in the world. My fear is that a lot of American Christians actually are living in what we could call Christian Islam because it's a set of rules without the power of Jesus to complete them. And so what happens is the guilt, the condemnation, or now comes the justification, well, God knows that I'm what? God knows that I'm weak. And I want to say that's not a justification for doing something the Bible says don't do. The only way I'm going to get through that is God's got to help me. So then he begins to outline after saying the problem is the loss of my presence. And he, he goes through now two basic problems. And we put one up on the imaginary chalkboard over here, one up on the imaginary chalkboard over here. What's this one over here? And everybody says, I understand this one. For all of its subcategories. Again, fear at the top of the list. Now what have we got? Worry, anxiety, depression, discouragement, low self-esteem. And it goes on and on and on and on. And loneliness, rejection, and a host of what are referred to as emotional problems. It's not just Christians that understand this. The world really does today. Counseling is probably, in the world now I'm talking about, as high as it's ever been in the history of America per capita. Or in the history of the world, actually. You'll find counselors everywhere that are trying to solve the problems of people. In the medical realm, now it's Celexa, it's Zoloft. It's just one drug after another that is being prescribed. And I'm not here to say don't do these things. I'm simply saying this is the problem that we're faced with. And God has to know because he's the one that initiated the discussion back in Genesis chapter 3 to say, this is what you're up against when my presence isn't in your life. So God's presence come into my life and it gets worse. You say, how could it possibly get worse? Um, where's Pastor? Do we have a problem with body, soul, and spirit terminology? Okay. I want to do an illustration out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, and it may differ a little bit, but it, the, the essence is not an element of theology. The essence right now is how to solve a problem. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 23, no, correct that, 5.23, if everybody would turn there. 1 Thessalonians. Paul the Apostle outlines... Elements of our being. And, and since I, I'm not a literalist in this necessarily, some people call this a trichotomy point of view. Others would say, I don't really believe it quite this way and call it a dichotomous point of view. Studying both sides of the issue it comes out, I believe, so similar. It's just a matter of the way we approach it. And so if this is a little different than you've seen it in the past, hang with me anyhow because I think I can help you. So he talks about what? Spirit, soul, and body. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the scripture says that the scripture itself is quick, it's sharp, it's powerful, like a knife or a sword, to the dividing of the soul from the spirit, meaning simply, I know that I have a body. Now, some of you have seen this kind of an illustration I'm about to do in a three concentric circles. How many have seen that? The outside circle represents the body. The next circle, the soul, the inner circle represents the spirit. How many have seen that? I'm not going to do that. What I want to do, though, is to indicate some of the issues that Paul talks about, the Scripture talks about, in an illustration. And again, I don't want to put a heavy-duty element of theology on it. But over here, let me put the body. Over here, let me put the soul. And over here, let me put the human spirit. Fair enough? God created the human spirit, however that exists, to control the human soul, to control the human body. 
When Adam sinned, that got turned upside down. So the, the body controls the soul, the soul controls the, the spirit. Now can you see what Paul's saying? The things that I want to do? Meaning in my heart, in the deepest part of my life, I want to do these things. And he said, I, I don't do them. Why? Because we have found that when the soul, the will, the mind, and the emotions, and there are words that indicate will, mind, and emotions under the Greek and Hebrew words, that the will, mind, and emotions cooperating with my body produces what the Bible calls flesh, when the spirit is excluded. So I know to do good, but I don't always do it. Now, when Christ entered my life, I know this. I, it was a lot of thought process, but I know he entered into the deepest part of my being at some particular point in the past. So that all of a sudden there was a recognition or a knowing here that I believe went far deeper than my mind is able to really detect. Let me see if I can explain that in a number of ways. Uh, how many have been reading the Word and, and, and in your mind it says one thing, but in your spirit you begin to realize... Or in your mind, you may say, be saying this. I really don't get this. But in your spirit, you're kind of saying, Man, I know there's truth in this, whether I can understand it or not. I believe that's the human spirit that is knowing that there's something. Or how many have had this happen to you? You're praying for something. You really need an answer from the Lord. And two weeks after you pray for it, suddenly you go, yeah, that's it. But then you look back and you say, you know, I really knew that a couple days ago. I knew that yesterday. What's happening is the Spirit is allowing this whole dynamic... Am I still on? This whole dynamic of understanding... Can you hear me? Now I'm on. Now I'm on. The Spirit is allowing this whole dynamic of understanding to reach into our, basically our consciousness. Now I'm not. All right. Don't, don't bother with that. Stay with me. So Jesus comes into my life, and all of a sudden there is a massive war that takes place. Anybody understand the warfare? And you just feel it from within, because you know what is right to do, but all of a sudden something over here is pulling. Let me see if I can explain it this way. Oftentimes, Pastor and I and uh, our wives went out for, for something to eat after the service last night. Sometimes, and we didn't last night, but we go into a place where there's this big curved glass when you enter the, the restaurant. Anybody know what that is? It's called temptation. Because everything under that glass is something that I want desperately because of the way it looks. And I told you yesterday, I think, I believe, I personally believe that chocolate is one of the four main food groups. Don't argue with me. It's my theological belief, and I will stand on it till the day I die. But, you know, when I go in there and I look at it, my body says I want the whole thing. And even when it's seven-layered, about this tall and about this big around, my body is saying, what? I want the whole thing. And, of course, my spirit's over here saying, you know, there's nothing wrong with chocolate in moderation. But my body's over here saying, what's moderation? My spirit's over here saying, two-inch piece won't hurt you. My body's over here saying, you're out of your ever-loving mind. Two-inch piece isn't even a good taste. <laughs> Anybody understand what I'm saying? The argument that goes back and forth. It just keeps going back and forth. And, of course, after a while, you know, my body's saying, okay, 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 you win. If I can't eat, can't have a whole cake, then how about half the cake? What's this called? called compromise. You're right. Yeah, compromise. And of course, my spirit's over here saying, remember the last time you tried to eat half the cake? My body's over here saying, I don't remember. <laughs> How many have had this happen to you? The moment you try to eat half the cake, you suddenly remember, and now what are you saying? How did I do that again? How many know right now I'm not talking about chocolate cake? How many understand the incredible battle now that we're talking about? This is why people don't always stay in the church. They love you. They love the pastor. They love the church. They love everything about it. But they can't live up to it. It's at this particular point where I want to say there are some truths that if you know the truths, then you'll begin to understand this. We can be overcomers. Not in a 12-step program, though I'm not putting anything against that. 
I do believe more so, though, it's a one-step program. And it's Christ in me that becomes my hope of glory. That's what the Bible says. But glory is representative of what? The presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord. Moses goes into the mount, into the presence of the Lord, and what happens? The glory just absolutely covers him. And so the problem over here, again, are the emotional difficulties of life. The problem over here, which I've seldom ever had a problem with in my entire life, and I'm glad to be able to tell you that, is what? Pride. <laughs> yeah, pride. Probably some of, for many of us, not most of us in our room, probably almost bigger than the one over here. And the way you can prove it, and this is fun. I mean, I, I like to have fun with people sometimes. It's a matter of all you have to do over here to see how much pride is in the human race. Go to lunch with somebody and just start asking them about what they think about the upcoming presidential elections. Ask them about theology. Ask them about anything that is a difficult thing where people will have contrary opinions and you'll find out we, friend, all of us are full of arrogance because we know the truth. We know what ought to happen. You know, I, I, I actually, I shouldn't tell you this because I, I felt like when I was more of a kid, I felt like I could probably do better as the President of the United States than anybody that's in office right now. How many have ever wondered if you could, you know, just kind of like, you know, just put me in there. Uh, uh, arrogance, that's all that is. The neat thing about God is he's saying to his people, I, I, I'm not going to jam you with trying to get it out, but the tender leading of a father God, a daddy God, opens our eyes to where we can begin to see. How many have ever had a little smile on your face when the Lord revealed something to you that really kind of was coming down on you? It was kind of like chastening, you know, and after a while you're kind of going, well, that's pretty cool the way you chasten your people. As opposed to sometimes when we've been preached at or taught sometimes, and I'm not referring to your pastors here, but there's times, I think, when some pastors have the idea it's a matter of just scaring people real good and that'll get rid of their sin, or somehow or another just you know, harassing them periodically. My children in this life always responded well to the tenderness of mom and dad. So you ever spank them? Yeah, yeah, we did. My son basically once. And uh, today he's so much bigger than me, I wouldn't think of even looking at him in that way. But, uh, yeah, there's a tenderness. And how? And you, most of you in the room, if somebody chastens you very tenderly, what do you do? You just kind of melt under it. If they come down hard on you, what do you do? The tendency for all of us is to respond or react and in some way basically say, I can't receive what you're saying to me or giving to me. My neighbor when I was young probably wasn't more than eight or ten years of age. His dad was a drunkard, and I still remember to this day. His dad took a great, great big old garden rake and hit him over the back with it. And I'll tell you what, Roger never grew up with a knowledge of a tender, loving Father, but you know what's happened is there's an awful lot of people in our world today, young people that are growing up with the same element. Here's the point I want to make. You, you folks have a, a youth pastor in this church that has 110 or so youth, I think, in the... Is that about right, Pastor? You're, I don't remember what it is. is there, there's a youth pastor here, is that right? Oh, no youth pastor. Youth what? Okay, children's ministry? About 45 kids. Here's the point. Those of us that are older should always be aware of children and kids around us, and young people especially, and speaking tenderly into their lives. Let me give you an idea how I did it today. I, I, was in, I, I believe in doing, not just saying. I was in a restaurant today. My wife and I, before we headed over here, there was a, a soldier. He was sitting all by himself. Wasn't anybody around. I walked up. I didn't even introduce myself. I reached out my hand and shook his hand. And I said, thank you. And then I really said it. I said, thank you. And I walked away. And I know that made a difference in that man's life. And what I'm saying is however you want to do it, you probably would have done it different than I did. That's not the point. The point is, is reaching out, especially to people today that have never, ever felt compassion or love coming from hardly anybody. And young people are the ones today that I am so concerned that older people, especially within the body of Christ, reach out to. Well, we've got to get to the notes. Let's go. All right, where are we at? I don't even remember where we're at. We are clear over on page... Did we finish seven? We did. 
All right? Top of page 8 is where we're actually at. And I want you to notice... We didn't finish 7. I told you to go home and do it yourself. That's just a way to get out of having to teach something I didn't want to teach last night. No, but I really did. Uh, when it comes to point 10, up there on, on page 7, we talk about holiness and righteousness and so forth, and I made the mention simply, you know, take this. I'm, this. I'm not here really to teach too much on this. Remember that? Take it home and study it yourself. Now, 11, though, gets right into our personal private prayer times and our prayer life. And the point here I'm trying to make is that unanswered prayer can stall your prayer, personal prayer life tremendously because of discouragement that comes at that point and questions of doubt. And everybody tracking with me right now. We kind of switch tracks. You're tracking with me. All right. Now, here's something that I want to make real clear, real clear. If we see prayer as simply being asking God for things, which most Christians that I have been around over the years, that's all it is, is asking God for things, then you can talk about unanswered prayer. But if you understand something that I'm about to teach now, you'll never use the terminology again. I don't believe there's such a thing as unanswered prayer. Because petition is only a part of prayer. So it's unanswered what? Petition. The relationship is not unanswered. If prayer is a relationship with God, if prayer is a communication system, then the system is not unanswered. Part of the system that pertains to asking is where there's a problem at the moment. So I try never to use the terminology unanswered prayer. Because it doesn't make any sense to me. So I want to give you in a little while about 12 different things, 13, 14, 15 different things that I would call elements of prayer. These are the things that actually the Bible says when you go to be alone with your God, when you go to prayer, these are the things ultimately that can make up whatever this communication system is all about. And one of them again is petition. And so again, not unanswered prayer, but unanswered petition. All right, let's talk about why a petition would be unanswered. Simply from what the scriptures say. First of all, top of page 8, part A. When we're asking what? James says if you ask amiss, or you ask incorrectly, I, my pastor preached a sermon recently that I just, it was, you know, I just, it was pretty powerful. And he was indicating that if you believe that prayer is just there to get things only, then he would say that's asking amiss. Because it's all self-centered. And so James says, you ask and do not receive because you do not ask correctly. You ask amiss. That you may do what? Spend it on your pleasures. I don't have a problem personally with God doing good things for his people. I don't have a problem with prosperity necessarily. But I believe, and many of you, I think, perhaps know where I'm going on this. I hope you do. And that is there's a lot of preaching today that's all prosperity preaching. It's about what God can do for you. And I want to say, it's not what God can do for me only. It's what ultimately I do within his kingdom to glorify his name. And then also the Lord makes it very clear that when you give your life to Christ and you become a part of the kingdom of light and life, you're going to face difficulty. Peter said, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. Uh, if all you ever hear is the kind of faith teaching that says, if you really have faith that things are going to go good for the rest of your life, that violates the scripture. If you buy into it and bad things happen, then you're going to fall into what again? This time it's going to be false guilt and false condemnation. Because they're going to, why are bad things happening to me and they're not happening to other people around me? And there are actually people in the body of Christ that do this. And that is they make it their personal responsibility to go tell somebody that's going through something bad that if they didn't have sin in their life, they wouldn't be going through it. Folks, when I sin, something bad happens, I know it. How many understand what I just said? I am aware of it. What I need to do is confess it and then repent. The word repent means to go in the opposite direction. Turn around, go in a different direction. Where I get frustrated is when I got diabetes today. And boy, I'll tell you what, don't get it whatever you do, because it's miserable for somebody that loves chocolate. 
I look at chocolate, and I'll tell you what, it is the most frustrating thing you can possibly imagine. So now I can't eat even two inches of the cake. I'm down to about what? One inch. And I'm going, this is no fun whatsoever. Anybody in this room know why I got diabetes? Well, super spiritual people always know. I don't know. I do know this. I believe in healing, but God hasn't healed me yet. Say, what are you going to do? I'm going to do several things. One, I'm going to go on without complaining. Two, I'm going to continue to seek the Lord for the possibility that he can touch me and do something about this. Three, I'm going to work on it because my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and I have a responsibility now to stay away from chocolate even though I love it so much. Those are the things that I'm going to do. And four, nobody's going to come to me and say, Ray, it's because of your sin. Unless they can point it out and say, this is exactly what you have been doing that you should not be doing. There's not going to be anything that's going to lay some kind of huge weight upon me because somehow or another somebody thought something that is not true. Are you with me? Now, if you're with me really close, you, you, we'll go back to yesterday where I believe there's far too much guilt and condemnation within the body of Christ on one hand, and yet there's an antinomianism mentality on the other hand. And it makes it extremely difficult for us as pastors sometimes to preach the gospel. Because we know for sure that there are those who just need comfort. They need to be encouraged and inspired and lifted up. And then there are those that need really to have their sin because they're living in adultery or fornication or lying or stealing or doing stuff like this because they claim that grace, grace is so great that they can do that. And I want to say these people need to be challenged different than these people do. But how do you do it when all of us are together? Well, you hold a seminar like this because generally... Those that are really hungry for Jesus come to the seminar, and a lot of times the others don't really come because they don't need the kind of teaching ultimately that I'm going to give this week. So I feel I can be pretty general, uh, gentle, and I believe the Holy Spirit wants that with some of us who are struggling to understand a better relationship with Jesus. How many in this room with an upraised hand would say, Ray, if, if I'm living in sin, I really want God to show me that I am because I don't want it. You see, yeah, it just comes out. Those of you who didn't raise your hand. Let's keep going. Ignorance in asking. My people are destroyed for lack of what? Knowledge. You say, Ray, what's the solution to all of this? It's a prayer that goes something like this. Lord, teach me your ways. Show me your paths. Or in Psalm 139, and I find the Psalms, the best prayers in the Psalms sometimes, just unimaginably wonderfully beautiful Psalms. Psalm 139, search me, O God, try me, and see if there is any what? Wicked way in me. You say, Ray, do you pray that? Oh, yes, I do. With this realization that my father is not going to pound on me when he finds something wrong, but he's going to alert me to it and he's going to help me to work through it. It's one of the reasons why I stay away from pornography. I don't believe God wants me involved in it in any way, shape, or form. Two reasons I believe the Lord has discussed with me personally about it. One, that pornography creates an insatiable drive that goes beyond what God has created in the pure joy of a man and a wife coming together. And secondly, it, 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 there's comparisons that all of a sudden begin to arise. My, my wife doesn't look the same as she did when we got married 40 years ago. And that's not to degrade her by any means. It's simply to say, as you gals get older, that girlish figure you used to have isn't there anymore. If I start comparing that to something that was airbrushed, then all of a sudden, the enemy can whisper to me and say, you deserve better than what you've got. There are countless numbers of divorces that have taken place over exactly what I'm talking about right now. I want the Holy Spirit to clean me up. And I started this years ago, and God does a pretty good job. Or what about this? Just that whole, my wife and I were discussing a friend that appears to have changed over the years, but it was a matter of, as we were driving here, this friend of ours, a lovely lady, but like me, and perhaps like you, kind of was one of those people who is a ticking time bomb. You know, there's nothing wrong with a time bomb until it explodes. 
That's the nature of a bomb. They are harmless until they what? Explode. And she was wonderful to be around until she exploded. But she had that potential. And when she did, she left pieces of flesh, other people's flesh, laying all over the ground and didn't seem to care about it whatsoever. How many know some ticking time bomb in your Somebody that's a ticking time bomb right now. Where you at? How many know somebody? How many say, I am that person, but I don't want to be that person anymore? And this is where God, the moment you say that, God says, hey, we'll work on that together. That's why David prayed, create in me a... Isn't that unique? He's asking for a change in his character. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit in me. So it's kind of neat to be able to share with people. You know, I'm not here and God's not here to bash you because there's something wrong with what you do or your character or anything else. But he is here to say, I am your Savior. Not just for eternal salvation, but to save you from the things that are taking you away from community. Because that ticking time bomb couldn't be a good part of community because everybody was afraid of her. I don't want to go into a situation full of people where you're always watching for somebody. You know, they're the person. How many have ever had this happen to you? You know, a bunch of people are coming and all of a sudden you, you, you look around and she or maybe a he is not there. And you kind of go, Whew. And then they come walking through the door and what happens? And it just puts a damper on life and all the stuff that is there. Now, here's the point. The point isn't just that person. The point is you. You. What prayer is designed for is to get you, along with the Father, where Daddy God can begin to deal with you in a sensible, tender way so that when you walk away, you can say, Father, you are a good God. You're a kind God. You're a merciful God. You're a wonderful God. I'd love to see people, Christians, coming to that place because, quite frankly... There's not a whole lot of Christians that I can sit down with. Probably seven out of every ten. If I sat down and I would say to them, you know, how do you view God? That when you really got down to the depths of where they are, he's mean, he's conceited, he's irrational, he's a whole lot of things that they would not want to say because they don't want God to know that they really feel that way. And that's why every once in a while I joke with you. Because the joke isn't intended simply to be funny the joke is sometimes and oftentimes intended to drive a point home. How many of you heard me say yesterday, don't tell God I'm, I told you this? <laughs> Do you know that was a point? What's the point? It's a matter of there are things inside that I used to be afraid that if God really knew these things, good grief, he's already angry. This is going to send him over the top. And then you begin to realize God knows everything about you and me right down to the nth degree of stuff we can't even begin to realize what's in our own hearts. So then prayer then becomes that time that we spend alone with God where these things then begin to develop. So 